We're in part two of our series, and our series is called Love, Dates, and Heartbreaks, and we're talking about relationships and how to navigate them well. And let me tell you, if you're joining us for the first time today, who this is for. This is for anybody that's serious about love and romance and healthy relationships, whether you're in high school or college, you've graduated, and you're thinking about getting engaged. If you are engaged, if you're married, there's something for you. And if you were married, now you find yourself single again and you're trying to navigate the weird wild world of being single and dating we want to help all of us grow in our relationships with other people because we think we have a God that loves a relationship with us now here's the other thing that I'm excited about and I told you this last week because I kind of drove us doing this series is I get to talk about something that breaks my heart as a pastor and just as a human being Because what I see, have seen for years and years and years is an observation of watching people make relationship decisions that undermine their relationships. And you've seen that in other people. Maybe when you look back in your past, you can see that in your life. But you know this, life is hard enough. It's just hard enough with the way life goes and the heartaches and the tragedies in life that we don't need any more complications. But often in our relationships, we make decisions We go in certain directions, we practice certain principles that makes our life even more complicated. And here's the interesting thing, you've seen it in other people, and you thought, didn't you see this coming? Has no one told you? Does this ever work out when you go this direction in your relationships? You see it, and I see it in other people so easily. The challenge is it's so hard for us to see that in the mirror. So if you are last week, we talked about two myths that we really believe as a culture and we tend to believe as individuals and it drives our thinking, it drives our relationships, it drives our decisions. And the first myth was this idea of the right person myth. And it's not that there isn't a right person for you and it isn't a right person for me, but the right person myth is simply this, that once you meet the right person, everything will be all right And last week when I said that all the married people groaned, right, because you thought you married the right person, and six months or six years into your marriage, you're like, he's not so right. In fact, he's kind of messed up in all kinds of ways, and she's kind of messed up. But the right person myth says, hey, it doesn't matter what I do now. It doesn't matter how I live or how I practice my dating and my relationships, that someday when I meet the right person, everything will just be fine. It's, it's a lie. It's a myth that our culture believes that I can live any way I want and have bad habits, insecurity, lots of debt, lots of weird, loose living. And then when I meet the right person, I'm just going to become a gentleman. When I just meet the right female, I'm just going to become a gentle man, or I'm just going to become a lady in that moment. But I haven't found him yet, so I haven't been the right person yet, but I will someday. And you know this, when I say that, you go, that is absolutely ridiculous. Except you'd also probably admit most of the world kind of thinks in that direction. Because when we meet the right person, we're the same man or woman, guy or girl that we have been all along. And what happens is we bring ourselves into our relationships and it has the potential, and it often does, ruins good relationships. And it defines our decisions and it fuels our fantasies. 
And, and just to pick on us married people, come on, we fantasize sometimes about finding the right person, don't we, married people? When things aren't so good with your husband, when things aren't so good with your spouse, you think if I could just go back and not marry him and marry that other guy or that other girl or have waited and found someone else, then everything would just be all right. Here's the challenge. We never, almost never, fantasize about becoming the right person because that is not as much fun to just think about meeting the right person because if I think about becoming the right person it takes work and it takes discipline and I have to do something about me it's always about who I meet next and then I'll be happy and fine and it's a myth and we'd all go that's ridiculous that we all think that way but it drives so much of our lives and so we've been talking about how do we become the right person before we ever meet the right person. And then the second myth we talked about last week was the promise myth. And this is a fascinating thing when you step back and you think about it. And the promise myth is this, that a promise replaces the need for preparation. And you may be surprised to hear a pastor say this, but listen, we're all in our world about, hey, we gotta be committed, we gotta be committed, we gotta be committed, and I gotta promise to love you for better and for worse, and I gotta vow, and somehow, promises and commitments and vows lead us to healthy relationships. And in fact, this is what we do so often. We, we go to a weekend ceremony, and there's some amazing vows that they read, or young couples write to each other, and it involves a song lyric and a poem, and everybody's crying, and it's just so emotional. And then there's a party, so you have a, pro, a promise and a party, and then we think everything is gonna be okay. And the only place we believe that a promise gets you to where you need to go is in relationships. Because when it comes to sports, we don't think promises count. We think preparation counts. When it comes to medicine, we said this last week, you do not want your heart surgeon to walk in and go, I promise I'm going to do a good job. Oh, by the way, I haven't prepped at all. I didn't go to medical school, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. So I promise this is going to be good. You don't want that. In a business world, promises don't count. It's preparation. Um, I have adult children, and my, my adult children are trying to kill me. Can I, can I just make a confession here? Every time I go to be with my adult children, whether it's Phoenix or it's Colorado, they t take me up in the mountains and like, we're going to climb 13,000-foot mountains, Dad. Let's go have a great time. I am 51 years old and more than a tad overweight right now in my life, right? And so I think they're trying to get, kill me for the inheritance. I'm not sure. It's just my theory. Now, I love my kids, and I love going to the mountains. But I'm telling you, um, I don't have a tendency to do what you need to do before you climb a 13,000-foot mountain, which is to train, 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 and lose weight. So I don't do that. So I stand at the foot of the mountain, and I look at this monstrous mountain, and I'm just like, all right, God, if you get me up that mountain, I promise, I promise, I promise. And God never helps me out in those moments. He's like, I told you so. I told you so. You should have prepared. You should have lost some weight, you should have exercised, because a promise doesn't get you there, even when you pray. Back in the days when I was competing as an athlete in college and I was wrestling, I, I remember standing across the mat, you know, with a national championship on the other side, and he was way better than I was, made skilled, more talented, stronger, faster, and like, God, just help me, I promise I'll, I'll, I'll prepare more next time. That prayer never worked for me, I just got beat up every time in those moments. Now you should pray. I mean, you should pray like crazy and you should connect to God, but our prayers should drive us to preparation in every part of our lives. In fact, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, we're so glad you're here. I mean, that's what you're frustrated with us as Christians, aren't you? I mean, our answer for everything is just promise and pray, promise and pray, and you're waiting for some Christians 
to prepare and be the people like Jesus called us to be. And relationally, prepping is so important. And we said this last week, because if you don't prep, you're accountable. And when you're accountable, but you're not capable, you're, can you fill in the blank? You're what? Does anybody remember? Yeah, you're miserable, aren't you? When you're accountable, but you're not capable in a relationship, in a marriage, as a parent even, you're miserable. And that's why we love to say around here that following Jesus makes your life better. I said this last week. Sometimes we take some heat for this because somehow people go, hey, that feels really selfish. But I think Jesus' greatest desire is follow me. Emulate me. Go where I go. And when you do, you're going to reap the benefits of living like I do and loving like I do. And it makes our relationships and our lives better. Not often easier, not perfect, but better. Because Jesus leads us to relational integrity. When you go all the way back to the beginning, the whole deal was about relationships between God and us and us and other people. It was about a connectedness. It's who innately we are from the inside out. And the goal of following Jesus is not to be happy. The goal of following Jesus is to be like Jesus. In fact, my, my guess is for those of you that aren't thrilled about church, your objection is not Jesus. It's probably more church people, right? Well, we want to follow Jesus to be like Jesus. It just happens when we follow Jesus and we're more like Jesus, our relationships tend to go in better directions. And here's what's interesting when you think about this. And this might disturb you if you were raised in church. Jesus did not invite us to pray to him or promise to him or negotiate with him. His invitation was always, follow me. That's what he said to all of his guys. Follow me, go where I go, and be the kind of person I am, and then you will change from the inside out as you're close to me. And this idea of following from the very beginning for Jesus, it was simple, and we have overcomplicated what it means to follow Jesus. It was simple, and it was compelling, but it was demanding. And the reason following Jesus is demanding, and here's a heads up if you're thinking about becoming a Christian, is what Jesus asked us to do was so simple and so clear, it would demand everything from us. But it was also rewarding. And there was a single command that Jesus brought to the table that would change everything, it would clarify everything. And I think we have made it way too complicated. We've talked about this a lot. He said, my command is this, and this is like one command. I'm going to give you one thing I want you to do. Love each other. As I have loved you. Not as you imagine love, not as I imagine love, because I have my definition of what love looks like, and you probably do too. As Jesus has loved, not as you define it, but as Jesus defines it. Not as you live love out, but as Jesus lived love out, which is this amazing act of giving his life on a cross for people who did not deserve it. And last week we left off, um, where we're going to pick up today, with the fine print And the fine print is this idea, what comes with loving one another, that will make you and I fine. Isn't that good news? Some of you walked in here and you're like, man, I barely got out of bed. I didn't brush my teeth or comb my hair, and I'm going to walk out of here fine. Woo, baby, you're going to walk out of here fine today if you just apply this to your life. And the good news about this, the fine print of Jesus makes makes you worth finding and keeping. And finding the right person you, but all, for you, but also being the right person. And this is something I think we should get 
good at. And you know what our culture says to good, good, good at? It says good, good at dating, good at, good, good at practicing being in the bedroom, get good at sex, right? Everybody wants to be better at bed, and that's, I get that. But here's what you need to know, and this might be the, the price of admission, the, price, the reason you got out of bed this morning. When it comes to sex and romance and being in the bedroom, romance is fueled by exclusivity. I can't say that word. Not experience. See, we live in a world where we think experience sexually is what makes sex great. But Jesus brought a world that says, listen, it's when people are committed to one another and no one else that sex is great. And sex does not make a great relationship. Great relationships make for great sex. Now, if you're a young person, close your ears on this. But we live in a world where we think, listen, if we just have a better sex life, we'll be happier. And research has shown, surveys have shown that happy couples have a better sex life, not a better sex life makes happy couples. Then let me say that to you again so you do not miss this. This is a big deal. Happy couples, invested couples, honorable couples, married couples have great sex life. Not great sex life makes happy couples and we're going to figure some of that out today and so the apostle paul he steps on the scene and he talks us through the fine print of jesus's command he paul the apostle paul who wrote over half the new testament takes this idea of love one another as i have loved you and he begins to explain it to some gentile people who did not understand love in this way at all and he gives us an opportunity to apply it. Here's something really important when you read the New Testament that Paul's imperatives, and imperatives are just his do's and don'ts, shoulds and shouldn't do's, are applications of Jesus' new commandment. So when you're reading the New Testament, especially the Apostle Paul, and he says you should do this and shouldn't do that, he's just explaining love one another as God has loved you. It's an application of what Jesus did when he rose from the dead for us. And Paul, defines this for us. Now, what I'm about to read, you have probably heard before. Maybe you had it read at your wedding. It's super common, but no one really pays close attention to it. At least it feels this way. So you've heard this. Paul says, love is, and he defines love right here. Love, first of all, love is patient. You know what that means for you and I? It means love isn't pushy. Love is not pushy, which means if someone is pushing you in a relationship, in a wrong direction, an unhealthy direction, they're not loving you. Because love says, listen, I'm not going to push you. I'm going to be patient and I'm going to wait on you. Think about it this way. Love chooses the pace of the other person, which for most of us, and I'm telling you, especially me, is not natural. Love chooses the pace of the other person, not themselves. Because love is a decision to pause rather than push. You know what's natural for me? You know what's natural for you? My pace and your pace. And you've had this thought. Why doesn't everybody think the way I think? Why doesn't everybody move like I move, whether it's fast or slow or somewhere in between? Everyone should do that. But when you push your pace and your way of thinking on other people, it causes relationship challenges. Now, I'm just going to step out of that thought for a second because I want to just talk to the females in the room. I could say it's the males, but I think it's the males that are the pushy ones most of the time. Women, ladies, if you're dating and someone is pushing you to do something you're not comfortable with, they are not loving you. 
If you're a follower of Jesus and you've made some decisions about this is the way I want to live my life and this is the way I want to treat my body and my sexuality and all that stuff and someone's pushing you to go past what you're comfortable in, what you feel convicted about, they are not loving you because love is patient. Love is not pushy. And you're way too valuable and important to be pushed. And men, I'd say the same thing about you. It's just we usually are the pushy ones. Because real love, it defers. It defers to someone else. You go first. I want what's best for you rather than what I desire, what my appetites are. Because this is what God did for us. God, if you think about it, did not force his pace on us. And when you read the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, you, you realize this thought that God accommodates our capacity. Because if God didn't accommodate our capacity and our pace, he would have never brought us back to him. He would have just crushed us or left us behind because God is big and he's beautiful and he's wonderful and he's perfect and we are not. We are slow like turtles compared to God. So God slowed everything down to bring us to him. And when you read the New Testament and the Old Testament, and you keep this in mind, you realize, oh, there's God trying to bring us back to him like a good father would, right? And you know this, if you're a good father, you're a good mother, you're a good parent, and you got a toddler and you're walking with them, you don't grab the toddler's hand and walk at full stride, right? Or if you would, you just drag the toddler behind you and you would not be a very good parent. And some of you are like, I do that all the time. What's wrong with that? Don't do that. That's not good for your toddler. What you do is you grab your toddler's hand. Grandparents, you know, you, you love this. We're not quite there yet, but you'd love this. You take baby steps with your toddler because you're accommodating your toddler, your little one, your five-year-old. You lean in their direction. You put yourself on pause for them. That is what your heavenly father did for you. And then Paul says, yeah, husbands. That's how you love your wife. Wives, that's how you love your husbands. That's how you love your children. That's how you love your future husband, your boyfriend, or your girlfriend. And we have to learn to relationally exercise the muscle of patience. Practice now what we want to have later in our relationship. And then the Apostle Paul says, oh yeah, and love is also, it's kind. And men, this for you may sound kind of soft because we're men and we're strong and we want to be powerful. And I'm not sure if kindness feels powerful. Here, here's what we all need to realize, that unkindness really is weakness, right? Unkindness is weakness. Because when a man, and I'm picking on the men, but women, you know, apply this where you need to. Men, when we can't contain our tongue, it's weakness. Men, when we can't contain our anger, it's weakness. Men, when we can't contain our appetites and our sexual desires, it's weakness, it's evidence that we are weak. And if we're in a weak place, we gotta stop being weak and figure out where, find where we can find strength. Because kindness, I mean, it's, it's powerful. Because kindness is this, and you've heard me say this before, loaning someone your strength rather than reminding them of their weakness. And we all have a propensity to do this, but have you ever felt someone say this to you? Oh, there you go again. There you're doing that stupid thing again. You're late again. You're missing that again. You're unorganized again. You're running your mouth. You laugh too much. You're too loud. Whatever it is, I'm reminding you of your weakness. See, kindness does for others what they can't do for themselves in the moment. That's what kindness is. I'm not here to remind you of your faults and your failures. I'm here to help walk you through this and hold up what you can't hold up in the moment. 
See, kindness, kindness is love's response to weakness. And we know this, again, because this is exactly what God, through Jesus, did for us. Paul says in another place, while you were still sinners, God laid down his life for you. Did he remind you, oh, there goes Matt again. Look what a failure he is. Look how sinful he is. Look how awful he is. No, I'm going to lend you my strength. That's kindness. Matt, when you're at your worst point, when you're at your most lost, I'm going to lend you my strength, my very son. That's kindness. Now, here's what I want you to do, Jesus would say, and Paul would say. Just do that for other people. Loan them your strength. So here's a question I think goes well with this that we should think about. What is your go-to response to weakness? If you're dating someone right now, this is, come on, if you're dating someone right now, you should pay special attention to how they treat other people. Not you right now, but other people. Because with you, if you're dating them, they're on their best behavior. He is treating you, ladies, at the very best he can treat you. He's on his best behavior. But how he treats other people, how she treats other people, will most likely be how he treats you someday. So pay attention to kindness, not towards you, but to everyone else. If she treats her mama bad, if he treats her mama bad, Ooh, you should run for the hills because that's the way he's going to treat you. She's going to treat you someday. And here's just one other note you may want to think about. People. People who use kindness as a means to an end are often mean in the end. Kindness is not something that comes from the heart and from a place of love. Man, they can be mean in the end, and you don't want to go in that direction. And then next, the Apostle Paul, he gives a toxic trio of three things. He says kindness or love is not. He said love, it, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Love is an envious, boastful, or isn't prideful. Love doesn't do those things. Love, in light of this, lets other people shine. So is this what love does? When it, when it really grabs somebody's life, love, and I, I'm telling you this is so hard for me. It's so hard for me. Love steps out of the spotlight so someone can step into the spotlight. It is not threatened by a wife's success. It is not threatened by a husband's success. When the other person is successful, love says, that is my girl, that is my guy, and I'm gonna celebrate you. I'm not here to one-up you. I'm not here to tell a better story. You told your story, and as soon as you're telling your story, I'm going to jump in with my story because my story is better than your story, and I want to be the best storyteller in the room. Love does not do any of that. Love lets the other person shine because it's not prideful. It's not envy. It's not boastful. And you've heard this before, but it's so true when it comes to these toxic traits that if you don't feel good about yourself, it is hard to let others feel good about themselves because we won't let them shine. Because I don't feel good enough about me to let you shine, and I need to let God do a work in me so I can do a work with someone else. And for some of us, and we'll get to this in the later part of the series, that means maybe I need to put a pause on my relationship's directions because I can undermine my ability to love in these moments as Jesus loves me. And think about Jesus. He, He shows up on the scene, and Paul says, you know, Jesus was uniquely... God, the very nature of God, but Jesus never pulled the God card. It's so interesting. Jesus shows up on the planet, and he's got all the power, all the authority, and he is perfect, and he serves everybody else. Isn't that fascinating? 
He doesn't walk into the restaurant and goes, hey, I'm Jesus, I want the best seat. Hey, I'm Jesus, I want to drive the Ferrari. Hey, I'm Jesus, I want first class. No, he washes people's feet. This is what love looks like. Jesus literally was the most important person on the planet, and he let other people be served. It is mind-blowing. It's a different kind of life, but it's where love works the best. And then Paul would say, now do that for other people. Take Jesus' model and do that for other people. That's why for all of us, everyone in the room, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, which again, we're really thrilled you're with us and hanging out, we all should pay close attention to your internal reaction to the success of the people closest to you. When someone is successful that you're close to, how do you do? Husbands, do you just celebrate your wife publicly and privately? Do you just say, hey, she is the best wife man could have, not just in front of people, but also privately. Ladies, do you just tell people, hey, look what my husband's doing. Look at how he's providing. Look how he's showing up. And you know, maybe your reasoning is, I don't, because I don't want to give him a big head, right? We all kind of feel that sometimes. Life, my friends, has a unique way for, from keeping us from having a big head, because life crushes us. And one of the roles for husbands and wives is to love each other in a way that builds them up. We celebrate the people that are closest to us. And if you struggle with this, it's okay. It just means you got work to do. It means you got to let some of this seep in and push out you know, the envy part of it and the pride part of it and let Jesus just take over. we got to exercise this part of the love imperative. Now, this third one is so big and it's so, you know, what I think, intense that we could just spend a whole morning talking about it by itself, but we don't have time for that. So I just wanted to look at it. We're told by Paul that love, it doesn't dishonor other people. Look what he says. He says this, love does not behave disgracefully, dishonorably, or indecently. And this is where when I talk about this as a dad, I just almost have to calm myself down because when I read this, I want to say to my sons over and over and all the men and women in the room, but especially the men, this is where we never cause regret in a woman's life. This is where we never want our names tied to, hey, my biggest regret was him. And my biggest regret was him. And maybe my biggest regret was her. Guys, let me just say something. And ladies, if you could just like turn your hearing off for a minute, because if I'm afraid if you hear this, you might use this against us. So ladies, do not pay attention to this. Men, give me your attention just for a second. Just tune back in if you're like looking at Facebook or ESPN or whatever you're doing. Come on, give me your attention. Do you know, men, how unique you would be? How powerful you would be? How strong you would be? How special men you would be if you decided... I will never dishonor another woman for the rest of my life if you made that decision. You would be the most special man in the world if you decided I will never dishonor a woman again for the rest of my life with my words and what I say, with how I look at a woman, with my response to women, if I agree with them or especially if I disagree with them. What I say behind their back when I'm on the golf course and one of my buddies makes a snide remark about a woman, if I just say, you know what, I'm not joining in. I'm going to choose to honor her. I'm not going to be a part of that. Men, do you know how special you would be? Men, do you know how special you would be in our world if you decided I'm never going to look at anything publicly? 
And I'm certainly not going to look at anything privately on my phone, iPad, or computer that would dishonor or disgrace a woman for the rest of my life. You would be so special and you would set yourself up for a place that you'd be a person worth finding. If we just decided we're going to spend our lives honoring the women in our lives, you might meet Jesus someday. And he might say, certainly you didn't get it all right because it's almost impossible to get it all right. And you're certainly not perfect men, but you're honorable. Close to Jesus as you could come. This, this idea of honor is something we've kind of lost. Because we think this, if you disagree with me and I disagree with you, I don't have to honor you. And that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus walked into people's lives. And we, we can justify it, what, right? I'm not going to honor you, and here's my five reasons I don't honor you. And Jesus said, no, I want you to treat people like I treated you when you were not honorable. This is what he says in humility. In humility, value others above yourself. Not because they're more valuable, but because that is exactly what Jesus did when he was the most valuable person in the room. And you know how to do this. This is the cool thing. We all know how to do this. You know how you honor someone? All you have to do when you're you know, going to be with your wife, your spouse, your future spouse, your husband, think about your most respected, famous person, whether they're an athlete, a musician, an actor. You know, For me, I might have dinner with Michael Jordan. I, I kind of like Denzel Washington because Man on Fire is one of my favorite movies, right? And so if I'm thinking about having dinner with Denzel Washington, I think about how I would present myself. And you know what I would do? I would present the best version of me. And you would present the best version of you to whoever you respect most in this world that you dream about having dinner with them. You'd bring your very best. And you would show up early, and you would brush your teeth. Man, there's a side note. Brush your teeth before you take her out to dinner. Shower a little deodorant. Always is helpful. Just a tip from the pastor. But you would get there early. And if Denzel showed up late, I wouldn't be like, Denzel, why are you so late, man? What's your problem? I wouldn't do that, right? I wouldn't criticize him. I just go, man, I'm just glad you're here. I'm just so honored to be with you at dinner. And you know, I'm glad you chose to be with me. That's what you do for your wife. That's what you do for your husbands. That's what you do for the person you're dating. You thinking, you know, what would I do for a really famous person I respect? That's how I'm going to treat the person I love most. Because that's exactly what your heavenly father did for you. Now, ladies, if you're dating right now, and you're dating someone that is treating you without honor. I just want to give you permission to do something maybe you haven't thought of. If you're dating someone, if you're dating someone that does not honor you, can I just give you a simple suggestion? And it's just simply leave. If, if you're dating someone and that man is not honoring you, here's my suggestion. Leave him. And normally I tell our staff, do not ever bring bad news through an email or a text. Make sure you have a face-to-face conversation. Ladies, if there is a man that is dishonoring you, just right now pull out your phone, text him, and say, I'm done. Throw your phone away. Get another phone, another number, and be done with that. And if no one has ever given you permission to do that, I want to give you permission to do that. Because you're way too valuable to be dishonored. And what happens for all of us and men, you can use that same advice, is when someone doesn't honor us and they treat us like we're dishonorable, 
we start to think we're dishonorable, and then we fall in the pattern of not living an honorable life, and then we get treated more dishonorable. And there's a cycle that gets worse and worse and worse. And you need to know this, that you're so valuable, and you're so precious. And do you know how you know you're valuable? The way you know the value of anything is the price that was paid for it. If you don't know this, the price that was paid for you was Jesus' very life. There is nothing more valuable on this planet than you. And if you're being dishonored, you got to change course somehow. And if you're married, listen, this is not validation to divorce or leave your spouse. But you have to find a way to bring honor into your marriage. And if you're not value, honoring the person across the, the dinner table or in bed with you as a spouse you got to find honor because the application is not how am I honored, but how do I honor other people? And we're called as husbands and wives to bring this honor to our relationships when we're dating, when we're thinking about dating, and certainly when we're married. Now, I recognize with that, for some of you, if you're single, you may be like, Matt, hold on, time out, man. Time out, time out, time out, time out. Because you're describing the worst date I could ever imagine. I'm supposed to show up and be honorable and connect and listen and have her home by nine and keep my hands off her and don't think about her sexually and all these things. That sounds like the worst date of all time. I'm guessing the men are thinking that more than the women in here, but that sounds like the worst date of all time. And that's because we live in a world that buys into this myth. It's about chasing after and getting and conquering what you want. And the Jesus model is, being the person the other person wants. And in the end, you get what you want. It's not what you're looking for. It's preparing to be the person you're called to be. And this, my friends, following Jesus in the fine print, is how you become a person worth looking for. It's Jesus' command to love as you have been loved. And married people, this, this is how you become a person worth staying for. It's how it works. It's not hoping and promising and looking and finding. It's about I want to become a person that's kind and honorable and patient. And when I become that person, someone's going to find me and I'm going to find them and I will settle for nothing less. I hear this story all the time. People say, you know, I've decided to make this decision to be this kind of person and I won't settle for anything less now. The other, the other path is this, and we've heard this a lot, is, hey, I, I thought that my partner would be so perfect it wouldn't require any patience. Have you ever thought about that? Like, I'm going to meet them, and they're going to be so perfect. I don't even have to be kind to them. They're so perfect. They're going to be so perfect, I don't even need to be patient. I'm just going to be a better person because they're so perfect. And you know that is just a myth. That doesn't mean that our relationships can't make us better. I've been married for 28 years. My wife has certainly made me a better person. But she's had to pay the price for the ugly part of me that I didn't deal with before I met her. I wish I could go back and be better from the beginning. And then she kind of got me straightened out, right? And then we had kids and all the ugliness came out of me again because I wanted all the attention. And to win at this, we got to prepare we got to start thinking, God, how can you put patience in me? And how can I practice? How can kindness be in there? How can I be an honorable person? This is where the fine print of Jesus comes in to play. And I can say that, and we can all go, yeah, that makes sense, Matt. You know, I think that's good. 
but I want you to do something about it. So here, here's a simple homework I want to give everybody in the room and online. I would love for you this week to go to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 7. You can find it on the Version app, you know, the dusty Bible that's on your coffee table. Pick that old thing up, blow off the dust. And I would love for you just to read these three or four verses over the next seven days. And I'd love for you just to pray through them. If you've never prayed through a passage of scripture, it's simply this. When you read a word like patience, say, Jesus, okay, I want to be patient. I'm married and I'm so unpatient with my wife. I'm so impatient with my husband, but help me to be patient. And what it will do is it'll help you to be patient. You can exercise it. Kindness. God, I just want to be kind. I'm dating her and I find myself not being very kind anymore. So help me to be kind. Help me to be honorable. Help me to put her needs or his needs before mine. I'm telling you, if we would do this, if this, this these three simple imperatives, I think it has the ability to change the course of our relationships. But, but I want you to understand this. You can't give away what you don't have. And it's when God's love affects us that we start going, you know what? God has been this kind to me and this patient with me and this honoring to me. And as it fills us up, it flows out. And for some of you, like it's mind-blowing for you to think, how could I even try this? And here's where you start. By receiving God's amazing, overwhelming love for you. And when you get a glimpse of it, a taste of it, when you're filled up with it, it's not so hard to start giving it away. And so your invitation as we sing this last song together, which is all about God's crazy love for us, is to let it fill you up from your heart. And then take it and start giving it away to your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, or your future spouse that you're preparing for, which makes our lives better, makes us better at life because we're following Jesus who gave everything for us. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for the fine print of the scriptures that tells us to love in these overwhelming ways that change us, that change our relationships, that change our little future. And I pray as Christians in the room, we'd be resolute to follow this and not just give it lip service, but be committed to exercising this every day. And for the people in the room that aren't sure if they believe, not sure where they are with you, Jesus, they just hear that wonderful invitation to come to your love and your grace and your forgiveness. And thank you, Jesus, for doing all this when we did not deserve it. It's in your name I pray. Amen.